Um, okay, so we'll get started. My name is Mohammed. Uh, I uh, lead our product teams at a company called Dessa. We are a company based out of Toronto, just right on uh, King and Spadina. Um, we've been around for about two and a half to three years now. We are primarily focused on building machine learning tools, um, specifically for uh, high-performance data scientists to be able to scale up their machine learning efforts. Um, this involves tooling to maintain models in production and to be able to rapidly scale the development of uh, our tools. So DESA, I lead some of our product teams there. We do a lot of work in the machine learning side. You may have heard us from the news and a few other things that where we build a lot of research papers around it. Uh, but yeah, and... Uh, well, yeah, so my name is Henry. I'm the co-founder CTO of Snap Travel, a uh, travel chat company based here in Toronto. I started the company about three and a half years ago and since then, we've grown to about 60 people in Toronto and another 80, 90 overseas for customer service. Uh, we've done over $150 million in sales, all over messaging, and have over 4 million users all over the world. So it's been a pretty incredible journey um, over the past three, three and a half years, and um, you know, happy to share my learnings and experience uh, along that journey. Awesome, thank you. And uh, so for, as for today, I think because we have such a technical audience in the room, uh, what I wanted to really cover is, uh, you know, what's it like running a startup from the seed stage? Talk about a little bit about infrastructure in terms of machine learning, right? What are the, some of the aspects that we cover in the seed stage and how that differs from the seed stage to a Series A, you know? At the seed stage, you're probably, you know, very scrappy in your development work. You're probably um, uh, have just yourself and few others working with you. But in a Series A, when you're trying to scale up, uh, you, will, you will probably have to worry about scalability and a lot of other things like that, right? Uh, so just to begin with, Henry, I know you already mentioned a little bit about Snap Travel, but let's, let's dig into that a little bit deeper and talk about really the technology aspects of it, right? <coughs> I know the uh, Snap Travel provides uh, a bot platform for you to be able to book hotels, but what about the technology aspects of it? How did you guys get started, really? Um, sure. So. I'll talk about technology first a little bit and then how we got started. So technology itself, it's a pretty um, standard modern web architecture. We have our, uh, it's very microservice based, um, probably 40, 50 different services uh, all talking to each other. And we have everything from our data pipeline service to our uh, recommendation service, our NLP service, our chatbot service, as well as our web application itself and external internal APIs. Um, so it's, everything kind of works together uh, across services to deliver the experience. Um, and the experience for the end user is you talk to our bot on Messenger, SMS, WhatsApp, Alexa. You tell it where you want to go, your preferences, just, like, just as if you were to talk to a travel agent. The bot will use NLP to understand what you're saying, understand your preferences, and then give you the best hotel recommendations and best deals uh, all over messaging. So that's kind of how the product works, and that's kind of the tech architecture. In terms of how we actually got started, uh, when we started um, uh, three and a half years ago, uh, I left my job at Google, um, and I, we had no idea what we were doing. So me and my co-founder, we knew we wanted to work together, but we didn't have an idea or, or a vertical industry. So we're like, hey, we'll figure some things out. We're testing ideas, iterating, pivoting. So that time was very much a rapid iteration process. Like, how do we build a landing page? How do we build an MVP? How do we, you know, get customers validate an idea? Eventually, we ended up in the travel space, and that's when <laughs> Messenger just released released a chatbot SDK, uh, where you can build bots. So we thought, okay, there's something here. Uh, can we bring the traditional travel agent experience back to the sort of online travel world of Expedia and booking, where everything's you know, depersonalized. That's how we got started. 
Um, but instead of building anything uh, or any NLP or any anything really, we wanted to validate the idea. So it was me on iMessage where you can message me and I was the bot. So I could look things up for you. You know, I, you would say I want to go somewhere and I would kind of go around the web, find things for you, send it to you over messaging. But the crazy part was that people wanted to, people gave us the credit cards over messaging. Uh, we're like, wow, there's something here. You know, you trust this service to give you credit card and book stuff. So we knew there's something here. We built the prototype. Um, at first, it was. Uh, we're using external APIs, so external APIs for our for our NLP, for the bot, for the you know state management, and that worked you know okay well. And then over time, we got better, we got more customers, more data, and we built our own technology in house. And now all of it is in house, and you know we've been outperforming any external um, provider API of, since like two years ago. So that's kind of how we got started in the journey over time. That's amazing. Uh, actually, I wanted to uh, dig into that a little bit deeper. You said that you know you were just like trying out newer ideas and trying to really find product market fit, right? right. You know, where is where is the market <coughs> situated right now, and uh, you know what can you build to be able to do that? And so you had these crappy ways for, you know, you are the bot yourself, right? Uh, but like in terms of like experimentation, right? What are some of the other strategies that you guys took to be able to? really experiment and 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 did you do any kind of like did you monitor any kind of kpis right. for you to be able to tell like hey there's actually an opportunity here and i want to be able to dig into this a little bit further um right so so um <coughs> for starting a company um there's one set of uh process and metrics and then for growing and scaling companies a different set uh for starting a company you know one of my favorite books uh, for anybody who's interested in this is uh, running lean uh, not not the lean startup, but running lean by Ash Moria. He goes into a very specific step-by-step -step process on how to you know test an idea, validate an idea, what kind of signals, metrics, and you know conversion rate, all these things for validating an idea. Um, so we kind of just followed that book, you know, reach out to people. You know, we would sit, send like 50 emails, see how many people opened, how many people replied, how many people like converted, and that whole funnel we would track just to gauge intent and gauge sort of um, the stickiness of a product or, or of an idea. Um, and that's how we got started in, in the space. And then as we scaled the company, it's a little bit different. Then we turned it more to, at first, user feedback, like talking to our users, seeing what they liked, what didn't like. Then once you had enough users, it'd be A-B testing. So testing different products, different flows, different funnels, looking at how different people behave to different you know, placements, different features, different buttons, how to affect their conversion. And then also, once we got the product conversion metrics down, we would look at the acquisition channels. So now it's like we have a great product. How do we bring people to it? So where do we spend our money? How do we spend money? What's our ROAS return on ad spend? If I spend a dollar, do I get 80 cents back, a dollar 20 back, a dollar 50? And how do the channels scale? And what are the opportunities in the channel? How much do I bid? How much do I pay per impression? And these are all the very metric-driven uh, initiatives we took uh, throughout the stages of the company. So we've been always metrics-driven and data-driven in our company. That's part of core of who we are. Uh, both my co-founder and I are, were uh, studied computer science. And it's one of our core values within the company, especially in a very competitive space like BDC Travel, which is probably one of the most competitive spaces out there. Um, so we're very metrics-driven in that sense. And what you measure changes as you scale the company, but it's been metrics-driven from day zero to you know now day or whatever a thousand something. Right, and that's that's really interesting. And and that's you know uh, thanks for answering that uh, from like, but that's the metric from like the you know your business to the consumer side, right? Uh, the people who are using the app. But you also have a B2B side of things, right? From the admin side, because you probably have to form relationships with these external hotels right. and uh, other business models, right? How did you approach those? And like, and you know, when you are a smaller company, you know, now you have like over hundred million dollars in sales. But before that, when you were such a small company, how did you get all these hotels to trust you to be a partner and and really get there? Um, yeah. So luckily, I mean, this is 
probably not a super satisfying answer, but ultimately, you know, we're selling, uh, <coughs> we're driving sales for people, and everybody, when you're on the sell side, it's, when you're on the buy side, it's a lot easier. Like, I'm not selling something to a company, right? I'm not doing enterprise sales. I'm not going out there trying to sell, you know, the solution to uh, a core or a Marriott. I'm just helping them sell their inventory. Um, they get the sale, and I take a cut. So from that perspective, it was actually quite easy. Everybody, I, I always say, everybody needs more distribution, and we're just an extra distribution channel. Um, and we had some good credibility and backing because it was a new channel, uh, it was unique. People liked the hype around that. That helped. A l that definitely helped. But at the end of the day, it was a buying process, and buying is one of the easiest things you can do when you have money to spend or buy. People want to sell things to you. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, let's dive into the technology part of it a little bit deeper. I know you mentioned at the beginning that um, you, at the beginning of the stage, you had the APIs, right, that you were using. It's probably like an external API for NLP that you were using. Um, and then slowly you transitioned into um, building a model yourself and, and really like investing more in the research part of things, right? So why did you make the decision? Uh, and also, what were some of the um, APIs and, and processes that we're using at the beginning? Um, sure. So for our NLP API, we used an external uh, vendor. It was called Evachair. It was a travel-specific NLP company that had a NLP for travel agents. Uh, we're like, wow, this is great. You know, it did everything we need. And then we were using them for half a year, uh, half a year to about, I think, eight months. And then one day, they're like, yeah, sorry, we got bought by Booking.com, so we got to shut down. <laughs> we're like, oh, okay, that kind of sucks. Uh, but actually, it was a blessing in disguise because. It made us really, you know, fi uh, spend time and energy and effort to build our own models. Um, that eventually outperformed that theirs, by the way. But uh, that actually was the driving force for us to build our own NLP. And I think that was very much a, a blessing in disguise. And you have some background in uh, machine learning yeah. as well, because I know you did your master's in uh, Georgia Tech, is it? Uh, yeah. So while I was doing this, but just a side note, I was doing a master's. By the way, it's a great program. I, I must say, I just want to people who don't know, it's the OMSCS OMSCS program from Georgia Tech. It's a full degree. Top 10 school, full degree, there's, it's 100% online, but there's no online distinction. Full degree, $8,000, 10 courses, and top 10 degree. A really great deal, really great program, great people, and for them it's about, um, it's about encouraging accessible, affordable public education, and, but by dropping the prices from you know, traditionally 50, 80K to $8,000, they're making education accessible. So for me, I was like, you know, it's a great program, it's a great deal, and you know, Snap Travel, I, we love giving, getting good deals, so we did it. I did it, and then I, I did a machine learning major in that program, and I did machine learning before, so I kind of have a background. I'm not an expert, and I wouldn't say I'm a you know world-class leader, right. but I have some background in machine learning. That's awesome. So, um, but what was that like? So, you know, they tell you like, hey, today we're gonna shut it down. Uh, Booking.com is taking us over. You have X amounts of days to migrate over, right? How did you maintain that part of the business? And also, like, how did you start really like getting deep into the model building, and and finally build something that is production grade? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, th that these kind of things definitely take time. Um, what we uh, what we did is we had we were working with somebody from uh, a colleague of my work, a classmate friend of mine from Waterloo. He uh, turned out to be um, a, a person who just loved languages, like NLP and languages, and he was doing a master's and now he's doing his PhD. And he's like, hey, you know, I think we can do something better. Uh, we're like, are you sure? Because Evatrude, you know, took him like seven years to get to where they are today, and even then, they're not like amazing. Um, and he's like, oh, we'll figure something out. So we're like, okay, so then we just did something quick, quick and simple, and um, it was mostly regex actually at the time, but it worked, you know, it worked. We, we, we put it through our data, and we compared it to eRichter, and I was like, yeah, it actually performed pretty well, sometimes even better. Well, like, okay, there's some hope here, so let's keep refining it, let's keep adding to it. And we're pretty scrappy as a startup, you know, um, 
where both in terms of like time, in terms of uh, resources, even training data. So we thought, okay, let's use this, you know, regex, mostly regex-based model with maybe some, you know, open source models. Let's use that for now to bootstrap, and then we'll use that to collect more data. We'll have the customers help us train our model in a way. It's like if the customer says this is incorrect, we'll take the data and we'll learn it and, and you know, get, get the correct data from the customers. So over time, we built the framework, we built the systems around that, we built the data pipeline architecture around that, and just kind of, you know, piece by piece, we collected more data, improved the models, and now we have a pretty sophisticated model that's obviously not just regex, <laughs> but uh, we have a pretty sophisticated model that does, mul it's a multi-part model that does, you know, NER, IR, and uh, intent detection uh, using various different models, and it combines together to, to create that experience. It's a, um, a fun little sidetrack, but um, do you know regex is actually Turing complete? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's one key takeaway. And I think the second key takeaway is also that you really need good friends to be able to uh, run a business uh, and, and have them as a saving grace when, when things go wrong. Now, I know that you said that um, uh, you, you guys started building your model, and, but you also published a paper. Right. Right? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So um, I guess kind of this kind of goes back to... Um, uh, supporting, uh, also working with uh, the friend who's now, uh, he still works with us, but he's also doing a PhD in linguistics. And you know, for them, it's uh, how do we now publish some of our research? Because it is quite industry leading, and we're pretty open about sharing. So you can find it online. Uh, we just presented at the IEEE AI for Industry conference, where I actually got the best conference paper, which um, we're pretty proud of. Uh, but essentially, it talks about how using uh, NLP AI in industry at scale, right? And I think a lot of people talk about um, things industry or sorry, talk about machine learning AI f uh, as like interesting projects or interesting academic um, papers, but to take some of that stuff and apply it in real life at scale, you know, over to millions of customers and you know, hundreds of millions of sales. It, it's I think that's what's unique about uh, the way we look at technology. And yeah, so we did that. That's pretty cool. And you can check it out online. We just talk about our models and different layers and different um, different uh, types of models we use and ha how we use it. You know, um, it's it's actually really interesting because in in Toronto, Toronto right now is like uh, a, a, an AI hub, right? We have Jeffrey Hinton, we have UFT, the Vector Institute, and uh, lots of other uh, really interesting things that are happening in the in the area. But um, even um, uh, you know, so so uh, many of us, uh, some of us uh, from DESA, we actually teach a course in UFT on applied uh, applied deep learning because what we found is that people always get stuck in the POC stage of things, right? They will do their research, right? They will go through um, tons of research and development and they'll burn through a lot of research scientists' efforts uh, and then they'll have a model, but they will do nothing with it. You know, they just have it somewhere there, right? But putting it into industry, putting it into a use case like, like Snap Travel, putting it into um, many other companies that are doing, for example, there's a company like Root Insurance, um, there's also companies uh, like Uber who are really using uh, machine learning to drive their business is really something that still needs to be solved at scale. Yeah, I think one of the things I learned is um, ultimately technology has to drive some sort of business value, um, at least in the <coughs> startup stage. And you know, this comes, this is more about sort of building a company where you know, for the seed round, for the you know pre-series A, whatever, you can you know kind of talk about tech, tech and hype and get people excited for a certain point. But at some point, um, when your growth and when when you're going out for the growth round, technology has to drive that business value. Uh, because ultimately, that's what technology does. It you know makes people work faster, work you know smarter, more efficient, whatever it is. And for us, that's what the approach we've always taken is um, use great technology, use it when it's where where it makes sense, and use it to drive business value. 
because ultimately, if it doesn't help the customer, it doesn't help the company, it doesn't help us, it's, it's just great project and great paper, but it doesn't actually drive the value that we, that I think good, good technology should drive. Tur yeah, totally. Um, but in terms of like uh, engineering culture, how do you, how do you how do you bring that out into your culture? I know uh, before just before we sat down here, you mentioned um, you know you really build technology uh, just to satisfy to satisfy the business needs. You know, nothing more than that, nothing too extra, right? Um, try to keep it lean. Try to keep the technology lean as as much as lean as possible. But how do you like ingrain that in your culture? Now that you're you're scaling your company right now after a Series A. How do you ingrain that in your culture at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think for us, you know, um, there's this sort of notion of people want to work on uh, interesting tech problems just for the sake of tech problems. Um, and, and for us, we really try to align people around this concept of, um, you know, personal growth as <coughs> well as winning, right? Because um, there are still very interesting problems, uh, and they've been solved in many, many different ways. And we look at, and for me, engineering is about solving problems, whether you use tech or not use tech. If you can solve something faster without using tech, and it works and it scales, great, right? Why, why do you need to you know, architect this huge, crazy tech thing that's hard to maintain, hard to reason about? So for me, it's about how do I solve problems and how do I grow in that process? Because solving problems effectively, I think, is, the, is a true measure of a skill, right? To solve something ineffectively but and, and overly complex is actually not, in my opinion, uh, a, a measure of skill. It's maybe a measure of I, I want to do something cool or fun. Uh, so for me, we try to find people who are aligned with that. We try to ingrain that in our culture. Uh, we're very metrics driven in that sense, and our, we align our company towards our North, North Star metrics around you know, revenue, growth, retention, stuff like that. Um, and that's not to say we don't use technology and leading edge technology, right? If you look at our paper, some of the models we, we use are, are really, really fresh and really brand new, and using it at scale in production. Um, you know, we're doing some really bleeding edge stuff with. Uh, with uh, learning, or excuse me, with uh, optimizing pricing and bidding on our hotel side, and how do we price things? Um, and that, that that's very hard, very interesting, but it also drives a lot of business value. Um, so that's kind of what we try to align ourselves on, and I try to make sure that people are always learning and growing in many, any many ways. And that could be infrastructure, it could be architecture, it could be you know process as well. Um, but so so we still have alignment, and we make sure people are growing. And I think that's ultimately what's what's most important. Right, and uh, even even from my experience, what I've seen is that in in startup world, many more companies have actually failed due to over engineering than uh, due to under engineering. Because what will happen is you know they'll they'll get they'll get a seed of <coughs> round, they'll get funding, right, and then they'll spend a lot of time trying to perfect um, a particular technology instead of experimenting. Right, as a startup, the best uh, the best thing that you have as a startup is agility, right? You're like a small ship that can change course really, really fast, right? But when you over-index on a particular engineering problem or try to perfect something, over-optimize for speed and things like that, I mean, there are situations where you might need to do that, and that might be your, uh, you know, yeah, your cutting-edge uh, development. But a lot of startups have actually failed due to the fact that they over-engineer way too fast uh, in their life cycle, right? Um, um, Okay, cool. So now what I'll do is I'll divide <coughs> the next few sections in, into two, two different parts. The first part is let's put ourselves in your shoes before the Series A, right? Before when you were just starting out, pre-seed, seed era, right? Uh, and then we'll talk about, and then we'll put ourselves in the shoes of, you know, after you, right now, right? What are you doing right now? But let's talk about engineering before, uh, during the first few parts, right? How many people were in the team? Um, how did you folks like you know? What were your engineering practices? How did you put processes in place uh, to be able to really uh, develop and move as fast as possible? 
Um, yeah, so when we first started, it was uh, just me and my co-founder. We would just, you know, I would build things and he would go kind of pitch around. And then we, we moved back to Toronto in 2016 and we were in DMZ, about four or five people. Um, again, super scrappy, just, you know, work on stuff. There's no roadmap. There's no sort of proper <coughs> sprint process. It's just, hey, let's go ship something. Like, you know, we have an initial idea of the vision we want to build. Um, let's go ship it. And then we talk to customers and we figure that out. So it was very, very lean and process light. If at all, because everybody, you know, we sat in this pod and we just turn around and talk to people. Right. And then as we scaled over time, we had a little bit more process, so we started doing like a light kind of Kanban process, you call it. Uh, we used, you know, Trello a little bit, maybe Scrum-wise, that's another kind of Scrum-like tool. Um, and then as we grew more and more, we kind of matured as an organization. We had different teams. We had a PM. We had a PM who can help us drive um, processes. And then we also moved to a more proper sprint process. And we had different teams. So each team had their own sprint process and sprint uh, planning, review, backlog, grooming, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it's sort of the organization evolves over time. And it all evolves based on the needs and continuous improvement and feedback. Um, and these are the things that we learn over time. We kind of see what works, what doesn't work, what, where, where do we see processes breaking, and do we, we hire the right people to help us improve that, and we try to change our process to, to accommodate for that. Right, um, but at, in, the, in the beginning stages, when you were doing, uh, you know, uh, you being the CTO, you're probably doing a lot of architecture design yourself, right? right? Um, how did you make those decisions? Like, how did you know, like, you know, uh, now is the time to use a pop sub mechanism, for example, or now is the time for us to uh, scale up and and uh, optimize our front end to make it faster, or any of those aspects? Yeah, those are good questions. I mean, the the front end is definitely a piece where I think I probably underinvested a little bit. Um, <laughs> me being not a traditional front end person, uh, I, th I think um, one of the mistakes I made was not investing as much in our front end because ultimately we are still a B two C company. And front end matters. Um, we've been we were we took the very booking.com approach, which is like just throw a bunch of tests, see what converts, and then whatever converts, you just keep it. And that kind of became you know a little bit of a cluster mech, 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 excuse me of uh, different colors and symbol logos and stuff like that. <laughs> so we had to revamp our front end. Uh, took a little way too long to do, but now we finally finished our revamp of our front end. That's an example of a, of a bad architecture decision, uh, and we probably should have you know hired a strong lead to get from the start to really make sure we use the right design system, the right patterns there. In terms of the back end, I guess um, I built a startup before this. I was at Google, I worked for a startup. Um, I was there like when there were 10 people. Uh, the CTO was the ex-CTO Zynga, so I got a lot of perspective just from other mentors, other people in this industry, also from self-experience, and a lot of just reading as well. So for the back end stuff, I, I feel like we've made mostly good decisions. Uh, we decided to do microservices pretty early on, and that's mostly helped. Uh, because we can deploy things faster. Each each service can be owned by a team, or, or um, each team can own multiple services, and they can be independent, independently monitored, tracked, um, and all that kind of stuff. So that really helped with our deployment process. And then um, in terms of the uh, machine learning architecture, we had uh, other people in the company who were really strong at that, so I delegated that to them. Uh, they designed the entire workflow pipeline from like training, validation, to deployment, to inference, uh, back to training, and all in a cycle. Um, and that, w you know, they've been really, they, they've handled that really well. Same with our data architecture, with a data guy on the team who drove the process end to end. Uh, you know, we made some mistakes on choosing <coughs> some, some platforms. We used certain tools that weren't scalable, we had to redo. But overall, like, um, delegating the pieces with strong leaders helped a lot. And, I, you know, I fortunately had some experience on the overall architecture and back end of things. Right. That's awesome. Um, can we dig into the um, the machine learning part a little bit uh, further? You mentioned that you have a machine learning pipeline. Yeah. 
right? Uh, what does the pipeline look like right now? Uh, and uh, and what, what was the rudimentary pipeline? And uh, how, how has it evolved so far? Because I know, I know a lot of companies don't actually have a pipeline right. revisionary. You know, they build a bunch of models and then uh, one of them goes into production at some point, right? right? There's no like continuous deployment cycles. Right. There's no way uh, to for them for someone to convert like a pickle file into a into a microservice in an easy right. way, right? So, what does the pipeline look like right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's still pretty scrappy right now. Um, when we first started, it's just you know somebody's laptop, bunch of Juniper, uh, Jupyter notebooks, and stuff like that, yeah. uh, right? And then over time, we had a more minimal form process, so we. Um, we, we added a, a data labeling tool called Pybosa, where uh, we have labelers label our data, and that at first you know, just gave a CSV, we upload to S3, and then we use that, and then we eventually moved that to the data warehouse, so now we ingest that data into Snowflake. So basically everything is locked, so we added a, 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 a logging infrastructure to log every event and every sort of click and label uh, data. We log that um, to oh. using our event stream through, uh, through Kinesis Now Fluent D to Snowflake, and then we have um, our labelers label the data in Snowflake, and then we use the data in Snowflake to train that data. Um, it's still actually you know, in a local desktop because um, it was pretty expensive doing the cloud with the GPUs, so we just bought like a giant, uh, giant GPU machine, and then we just train it locally. And then we deploy the trained model to S3, and then when we deploy our services, it downloads it, the model, the, the, the pickle file, essentially, from S3 into our server, and then it runs that file. So it's still pretty scrappy, um, but it works. Um, it's, it's at least it's you know version pipeline and stuff. But uh, we we try to keep pretty lean on that part. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but uh, it, it's it's actually really good that you guys are doing a lot of the uh, training and development within your um, uh, on premise, right? right? Because I'm sure there's uh, there's issues about uh, data data sets that you don't want to put it public, right? And at the same time, GPUs are so expensive these days, right? Uh, I think a GPU costs like two dollars and seventy-three cents per uh, per hour, which is which is very very expensive, right? But in terms of okay, so now you have put you've trained the model, you put it into production, right? Um, do you do any sort of monitoring on the model itself, or um, how do you know when is a good time to retrain the model or recalibrate it? Or uh, how do you even figure out like if there's any like uh, your standard deviation is shifting or there's any concept shifts that are happening at the moment? Yeah, that's something. That's a good question. It's something we're not super actively doing right now. So right now it's mostly just a batch process. Uh, we sort of you know look at we collect the data. So we collect feedback data from customers where uh, well sometimes if the if the model is not confident, it'll ask, "Is this correct? Yes, no. Is this what you meant?" And based on that data, we'll collect feedback. And also we have agents, in, like customer service agents, that can also train the model. So a lot of times uh, we'll surface suggested replies to our agents and who can say, is this relevant, yes, no. And we'll use that data to train our, to also inform them of our model. But the actual online training, it's not fully online yet. Um, we had some debates internally about this, whether we should make it fully online or not. And we decided that it's okay to just keep a batch. So what we just do now is we, every couple of weeks or a month, we would get the new fresh data we pass it to our labeler, join it with our customer feedback data, train the model, calculate our F1 score, and then do the deploy or tune the, tweak the model, et cetera. I see, okay, yeah. that's cool. Um, okay, one last question on this, uh, on the pre-seed side of things, right? Uh, oh, sorry, this stuff is like after Series A. Oh, this oh is yeah, this, all, no, okay. this is not pre-seed. Pre-seed was just like Jupyter Notebooks and like, that's it. Okay. Just like right, push okay. to production. Okay, cool. Uh, but but from the pre-seed side, you know, you're a CTO, which is in the pre-seed side, is about to uh, you know raise a ca uh, raise some capital, right? Um, what was one? It could be a podcast, it could be a book, it could be uh, any kind of advice that you had at that time that was really helpful for you. Uh, in in what context, like technical fundraising? In terms of technical process. concepts. 
Uh, technical concepts. Um, that's a good question. Uh, for me, uh, to be honest, I've been mostly focused on the process side of things. You know, um, I think I used to think about tech and, and DevOps as a, as a technology thing, but I've learned that a lot of it actually is a process thing, and it's about addressing systemic process improvements as opposed to like just a technology improvement. And that's something I've been really focusing my time on across organization as I learn about or uh, experience building a team, building a great culture. Uh, building the right tools and systems, a lot of this comes back to, to process, and, and it's not, and, and it's the people behind the process that really matter, uh, not just technology, because technology comes and goes, and tools come and go, and what's hottest, what's hot today could be cold tomorrow, um, but having the right people, the right process, the right sort of workflow um, really helps the team do more, get more done faster, helps the culture be more efficient. So that's some of the stuff I've been focusing on. And so they're not, it's, unfortunately it's not a direct answer to your second question, but it, it is related because your tech output ultimately depends on your process and the people. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think even as, uh, as uh, DevOps engineers, we, we tend to uh, over-index on what technology to use, what CI, CD pipelines to use, but um, instead if you don't have any kind of like behavioral change within right. your organization itself, um, all of those are really useless, right? Um, okay, so now let's fast forward a little bit after where you are right now, right? Um, you've raised a series, uh, and now you're, you're trying to scale up the company, right? Uh, you probably had to hire a few engineers outside of yourselves, yeah. right? So what's uh, what's the headcount like at uh, Snapchat at the moment? Yeah, so it's about 60 people in Toronto, uh, mostly product engineering, and then another 80 overseas for customer service. Awesome. So. Um, after you raised this capital round, you know, why did you decide to stay in Toronto and, and not go back to, say, California or, or somewhere else? And why did you decide to hire some of the core engineering talent <coughs> in your uh, Toronto office itself? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So I actually started the company in SF. I was working at Google in California. I quit to start the company, and we were there for about half a year until we found you know, our initial idea, and then we moved back to Toronto in um, mid-2016. Um, and that was kind of due to many reasons. One being my co-founder, his, his wife is here, his family's here. Um, also, I you know, grew up mostly in Toronto and I went to Waterloo as well. So part of it is like family, family, but also it's just the, the access to talent. Um, I think Toronto has a lot of great, Canada in, in general has a lot of great talent. And um, it's not as competitive as it is in the Bay Area where, you know, one day somebody's raising twice your raising and offering to pay your engineers, you know, <laughs> twice. I mean, people, it's still competitive, don't get me wrong, you know, people try to poach all the time, but it's not like that crazy. So I think it's just access to talent. Uh, and also on top of that, there's a level of focus where I think there's always the next, you know, unicorn, the next hot thing um, elsewhere, whereas here in Toronto you can really execute and, and grow the company. Um, so that, that's a com combination of reasons there. Yeah, I think that's what I found as well. Um, um, Dessa is also based in, in Toronto region, and many of our, the reasons we've hired so many people in the Toronto region is because Toronto's just been so great for the AI community uh, or the machine learning community. You know, there's like thousands of meetups that are going on every single day. There's uh, people writing research papers from Toronto uh, like on a daily basis, right? And we've just had such incredible access to uh, talent, just like, you know, a walkable distance from Toronto, you know, to be able to find this talent. Yeah, and also we, we actually, one, one of the things is uh, um, we've hired a lot of people who wanted to come back from the Valley. Um, so one of our engineering managers was a senior oh. engineer at Google. Uh, we a lot of, I think over half our team has some sort of experience in the U.S. And, and, and that's actually, I think, is good. I think, you know, as a young person, it's good to get that experience in the U.S. to, you know, be uh, kind of 
in a place which is hyper competitive and also has a lot of smart people, but also people wanted to come back for family to settle down, whatever. And we get a lot of talent that way. And, and you know, that, that we sort of for us, we th we try to build a fast growth Silicon Valley style company within Canada. So we capture a lot of the talent here. I think it's very similar to you know Terminal and what they're doing. Hmm. So did you do a lot of the uh, hiring yourself at the beginning? Uh, yeah. So I did a lot of hiring myself, and then we hired a. Um, uh, HR person to help with that, and that's okay. helped tremendously. Um, but yeah, I hiring is a, is a sort of a company-wide um, initiative. I see. What, what were some of the uh, things that you, like, do you have a particular style in your interview process? Like, how did you reach out to people to be able to um, get them to join Snapchat yeah. at an early stage? Yeah, I think it's anywhere and everywhere. Um, you know, it's like LinkedIn, AngelList, <laughs> email, um, cold reach out, whatever. Like, whatever channel works and people reply, <laughs> you, 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 you go. And um, you know events in person, whatever. And and yeah, hiring is tough. It's always tricky, um, and that's a constant iteration process. I wouldn't say I've you know nailed my hiring funnel. Um, I, I still think we can improve on that, um, and we can, we're continuously trying to optimize with like different messaging, different reach outs, different follow up periods, uh, different you know articles we send. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a competitive process. Awesome. Um, how do you think your role has changed now? Uh, when you have scaled the company a little bit as a CTO versus what it was uh, before the pre-seed stage? Um, yeah, def so definitely one thing is I, I code a lot less now. Um, so, you know, early days I was coding almost everything. Now I'm sort of coding very little, if, if at all, during the day, and I do maybe 10% at night when I'm at home. Uh, but a big part of my role now is about how do I focus on the process and the people within the company? How do I make sure you know, the leads and team leads are successful? Do they have the right support, the resources, the training? Um, do, they ha do I have the right people in place? Um, should I hire somebody? Should I bring somebody on board? Should I swap teams or something? So a lot of that is around the people process, process of things. Um, I also do, uh, for me, it's just uh, I, I like a lot of strategy stuff, so I would get involved from the strategic side of the company. But from a purely tech product side, uh, my day-to-day -day now is a lot around process, like what do we do, why do we do it, how do we do it, and do we have the right people to do it. Um, so that's been sort of a shift for me. Cool, awesome. Um, I think I'll ask one last question before we jump into uh, a little bit of q and I know we've been talking for some time now. Uh, we'll let the audience ask some questions. But one last question, this is more of a future-facing and also reflecting on the past, right? Uh, we've seen chatbots um, become a really you know, big thing about four, three, four years uh, ago, right? So there was this, you know, peak hype cycle for chatbots at some point, and then after that, it slowly died down. Some business models have come out of it, right? Some have gone successful, some not, but the hype has really uh, been stable, right? But we're seeing a little bit of a pickup again, right? You know, companies like yours, uh, Snap Travel, there's a lot of other companies that are also coming up right now who are doing uh, different kinds of NLP work for um, other aspects of, uh, of different kinds of industries. But why do you think that, that that cycle happened? And also, what does this mean for Snap Travel in the future? And, uh, and what do you see like conversational AI go uh, at a later time? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think, you, you know, I don't know if people remember when Messenger just launched Chatbot SDK. It was a crazy hype wave and it kind of crashed. Um, and I think it comes back to what, what I was saying originally is that technology ultimately has to create real value. Um, and if you look at the history of the, like, humanity, technology has always created value. And when you're building on hype, when you play, you know, if you play with the chatbots in early 2016, you'll be like, 80% don't create any value, right? It's like a chatbot that you know, tells you like, what's the weather? Well, why don't I just open the weather app? <laughs> so things like that where 
uh, it wasn't it was around creating hype and novelty for the sake of novelty and it wasn't around creating value whereas we've always been about creating value for the mm. customer and, and you know, part of it is convenience part of it is, is recommendations part of it is price part of it is service but ultimately for us as a company we were very focused on creating value for the customer and that's ultimately why we've been able to grow and sustain you know and, and, that, and the hype wave came and came and came and went but we've been growing consistently, you know, dub uh, doubling, tripling every year for the past three years uh, because of the focus on, on the customer. And ultimately, I think that's what matters and that's what's going to win. And so in terms of looking forward, I think a lot of companies that survived the, the, the crash was, well, maybe not crash, but the, the dip, were the companies that focus on creating value. I think, you know, um, my friend uh, Mike at Ada, right, they're, they're about creating, using technology to empower better customer service. And they're creating real value to automate you know, customer service agents save companies money and create maybe even better uh, chat experience, chat service experience. Right. So things like that, I think, will emerge. And yes, I, I believe there's a world where uh, chat is better, uh, but it's not better for everything. And, and that's where companies have to really pick their battles to make sure they're ultimately creating real value. Right, yeah, totally. And, and I totally agree with that. It, it, it's the same thing with any kind of like machine learning work, right? Machine learning has really existed for a very long time now, but it's just now with the advent of like cloud computing and advent of like being able to use GPUs remotely, it's just much more accessible that a lot of people can create value out of it, right? And that's where we're seeing a huge rise in the, in the peak right now. Would you say so? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, there's a, comes down to creating value. And I think right. <laughs> now we're seeing companies take that technology and really automate scale and make things do, do things better, faster, cheaper.